Today we're going to start looking together um, about the seven words of Jesus from the cross. There's a handout if you haven't got one, so grab one after the service uh, just outside under the notice screen. Um, Seems a bit strange because as we go through Lent, we're, we're kind of going to the end of Lent, if you like, to, to the cross. And so it feels kind of a strange thing to be doing in some ways. But uh, let's just remind ourselves together of what Jesus said on those, on those words on the cross. You know, I love words. We're fascinated with words, aren't we? Our whole being is surrounded by words. You know, women on average speak about 20,000 words a day, men about 13,000. It's true, apparently, research has said it. And, and I was reading an article and apparently women have a kind of a, a protein in the brain, in the part of the brain that uh, deals with language that kind of stimulates words. Uh, men don't have it, which is why women talk more than men, apparently. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but there you go. That's what the scientists say. But I remember when I was at school, I was never really much good in English or history and the kind of words, the arts kind of subjects. I was much more of a scientist. I was much better at uh, physics, maths, those kind of things than I was at English or history and anything he had to write an essay about. Which is kind of ironic that God called me into writing essays every week. But anyway. But I remember one time I thought, wouldn't it be kind of cool, I had to write this story and I thought, wouldn't it be kind of cool if I actually put some really long words in there? So what I did was, I sat down with a dictionary and I flipped through the dictionary until I found the longest words that I could find. And then I kind of steered my story so that I could actually put them all into one sentence. And I had like incandescent and, and uh, all these kind of, you know, long words that I had to look up the meaning of. And the teacher was so impressed that she read out my story, or part of my story, to the rest of the class. In fact, she read out my sentence. There was kind of like a sentence that you would find in a, in a PhD study. The rest of it was complete gibberish of the story, which is why she didn't bother reading it. But she said, this is the kind of standard that I want in my story. Of course, I gave up because I was lazy in those days, and so I didn't bother ever doing that again. But we love words. I looked up in the dictionary some unusual words. Anybody know what a Yarborough is? I think that's right. Yeah, Yarborough. Anybody play cards? Any bridge players here? Do you know what a Yarborough is? A Yarborough, apparently, you can use this, this is education time, right? A Yarborough is when you get a hand of cards where there's nothing above a nine. So it's just useless, basically. And apparently that's called a Yarborough. Anybody know what uh, zoanthropy is? Lover of life? Sorry? Zoanthropy. Anybody know? You do now because you came to the early service. I want to see that in an essay at LST, alright? Yes. The zoanthropic way of writing it, you know, and then you could put that in. See whether they look it up. Anybody know? It's when somebody really truly believes that they're an animal. It is, apparently. They call that zoanthropy. So if you wake up one morning, think you're a beetle or something, you know, then, then that's zoanthropy. And the one I really love, gentacular. Anybody know what that means? 
Gentacular, this is one you can usefully use. Gentacular, it means that pertaining to breakfast. Isn't that great? I don't know quite how you would use it, but anyway. That pertaining to breakfast. Everybody's looking for Josh when he walks back in, aren't they? They're going to go, ha! But words, some words, like all those words that we say, most of them you never remember, do you? I remember when I first started sermon class in, uh, in college. And I, I was a real, like, I took it because I thought, well, it would be kind of, I might have to use it one day. Because I wasn't at that point training for a pastoral ministry, I was going to go into missions and go back to Africa. So I thought, well, maybe I'll have to preach, so I better do a preaching class. And I remember saying to the, uh, to the lecturer in the first class, well, what has the preaching ever done? I sat through thousands and thousands of sermons, I can't even remember a single one. And he said, well, perhaps you've never listened to a really good sermon. And I said, rubbish. I said, I'm from England, I've listened to plenty of good sermons. I've been to hear John Stott speak and some of these other people. I've heard some good sermons, but I can't remember them. And then he started actually playing some good sermons that I could uh, remember afterwards. But words, words are memorable sometimes for a number of different reasons. Sometimes words are memorable because they are profound and they make you think. And because they make you think, you remember them. Somebody said this, Love begins with a smile, grows with a kiss, ends with a tear. When you were born, you were crying and everyone around you was smiling. Live your life so that when you die, you're the one smiling and everyone around you is crying. Isn't that good? I read that the other day and I went, that is good. I'm going to remember that. Live your life so that when you die, you're the one smiling and everyone around you is crying. Some words are like that, they're profound, they make you think, don't they? And you think, you know, I'm going to remember that. Some, some are memorable because of the occasion. One day I remember standing in church with a beautiful lady next to me and I looked into her eyes and I said, I do. I've said I do loads of times before that and loads of times after that, but that's the only time I really remember saying I do to anybody. Because of the occasion. I'll let you guess what the occasion was. See if you can figure it out. But I remember, you know, Oscar Pistorius, who's on trial at the moment, he wants to hear those words, not guilty. And uh, you'll have heard not guilty a thousand times, before and after. But because of that moment, that occasion, if he hears those words, it's life-changing. If he hears the word guilty, it's life-changing. Because of the occasion in which it's said. And some words, some words are memorable, not because of the occasion, not because they are necessarily that deep, but because of the person who speaks it. You can buy books on the words of Mother Teresa, or of, um, oh my goodness, my mind's gone blank, the guy in South Africa, Nelson Mandela. You know, you can buy books of what he said. And they're not necessarily the deepest words in the history of humanity. But we respect what he says and we take on board what they say because of who they are as a person. 
Mother Teresa said this, the hunger of love is much more difficult to remove than the hunger of bread. It's true, isn't it? And it's true because we automatically think of Mother Teresa, it was about this big, wasn't she? There with people who are dying and have no love and she showed love as much as giving bread to the people she worked with and ministered to. She said this too, we need to find God and he cannot be found in noise and restlessness. God is a friend of silence. See how nature, trees, flowers, grass grows in silence. See the stars, the moon and the sun, how they move in silence. We need silence to be able to touch souls. And you think of Mother Teresa and you think of those words and you put the two together. And then they become more memorable. And as we go into the words of Jesus on the cross, these seven sentences, short as they are, it is a linking of all those three things. They are the most profound words in the history of humanity. Profound because of what he says. Profound because of the occasion in which it's given. And they're profound because of who Jesus is. And so as we enter into looking at these words, we're going on an impossible journey in some ways. You know, when God, every year I think about in Lent, what, what, what shall I speak on in Lent? And every year it's come up, why, why don't you speak on the seven words from the cross? And every year I've said no. This year is the first year that I've finally given in. Because I stand here and I'm more nervous than I've been for a long, long time in preaching this series. Because these words from the cross are so deep are so poignant that my fear is that we will never do them justice. And we will never really do any more than scratch the surface about what Jesus was trying to say to us. Just think about the moment that Jesus said them. Think about the context to it. Jesus has finished his three years of ministry. He's gone through the Last Supper on Monday, Thursday. He's firstly begun with the pain of betrayal, where he's dipped the bread and the wine that we will dip and, and share together with Judas, who has then run away and is going to go and stab him in the back, effectively. Somebody that he's loved and he's nurtured and he's cared for and he wants to see the very best of is going to sell him out for a bit of cash to those that want to harm him. And not only that, he's then gone through the, the agony of Gethsemane because he knew what was coming. And he's there and it says the Bible, doesn't it, that he's, that he's, uh, he's sweating tears of blood because he's so scared about the future and about the next 24 hours and what he has to go through. And he's thinking in his humanity, can I do this? Am I going to break? Am I going to crumble? Am I going to see this through to the end? Or will my humanness somehow mess up my divinity? And so he's gone through that. And then he's been betrayed. And then he's taken away. And then there's the mock trials and the beatings. And his beard is ripped out. And he's been spat upon. And he's been stripped. And he's been lacerated. 
And he's been rejected by everybody who are throwing their humiliation at him and saying, look at you. And they're slapping him about on the cheeks and saying, come on, who's doing it? Who's doing it? Who's doing it? And so you get to that point where he's completely and utterly disfigured. And then when he's ripped to pieces as a human being, he's led up in front of everybody and they just say, get rid of him, crucify him. We don't want to know him. Yeah, he had great teaching, but look at him, he can't be the Messiah, get rid of him. And humanity just throws him to the wolves. And then, in that state where he's almost dead anyway, he's made to carry his cross, and everybody's just throwing abuse at him. And he's taken up to Golgotha, where he's finally, his hands and his feet are nailed to the cross. And it is in that moment that he begins saying these words. The first three words are from nine o'clock till lunchtime. And then from lunchtime till three in the afternoon, darkness, it says, covered the whole face of the earth. And then out of the darkness come the last four words that we'll look at. But today we're going to look at that first word from his cross. Before we do that, let me just read you something that somebody wrote. Written by a pastor and a doctor, they said this. This is the context into which he then utters those words. Walking, now crawling, each step an agony to behold. He's been beaten to an inch of his life. His back is in shreds, his face is disfigured and puffy where they've ripped out his beard by the roots. On his head is a crown of thorns. The soldiers don't mind getting a person who is almost dead because it means that their work would be easier. They drive the construction grade spikes into both wrists and then another one through his legs. With the ropes in place they begin to pull up the cross. Jesus now spurts blood from his raw wounds. He has no doubt experienced severe muscular pain in his upper extremities that only got worse as his joints separated. He could draw air into his lungs, but he could not easily exhale. As carbon dioxide accumulated, progressive degrees of asphyxiation would occur, and a build-up of lactic acid would create violent muscle spasms throughout his body. In order to take a breath, Jesus would have to push up on the nails in his feet, forcing an up-and-down motion as as the open lacerations on his back would scrape against the rough timbers of the cross. It is in this position that Jesus uttered his final seven shouts. We need to get to where Jesus is. Every word cost Jesus so much pain and anguish, which is why these words are so deep and so mysterious. So as we look at the first one together today, let's pray and ask for God's Spirit to help us. Lord, as we look at your word today, we recognise as much as we can how painful, how deep these came out of your son Jesus. 
And Lord, as we look into them over the next few weeks, we need your Spirit to help us. Because the well is deep and we have nothing with which to draw water. Lord, we rely on your Spirit. Speak to us. That we might understand something of the depth of the words that Jesus spoke. For we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23. You see the first word of Jesus from the cross. He's been led down, Luke says, verse 26. And Simon carries his cross because he can't do it because he's just almost dead. And he turns to the daughters of Jerusalem and he speaks to them as he's going and everybody's shouting abuse at him. And his mother and his disciples are there following in the crowd. And then he gets up to Golgotha. And verse 32, it says, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. You know, I don't know about you, but when you get into trouble, what do you normally say? What's your prayer when you get into problem, into difficulty? Yeah, get behind me. Get me out of this situation. Lord, help me. I'm in a mess. I know it's a mess of my own causing, generally speaking, if you're anything like me. But Lord, help. Get me out of here. And sometimes we even go as far, if it's a deep enough mess, we start making deals with God, don't we? Lord, if you get me out of this mess, I promise I'll read my Bible, pray every day. I promise I'll come to church more regularly. I promise I'll do this. Lord, I promise I'll I'll, I'll join the board. I'll do anything. Get me out of it. And we say, Lord, get me out of this mess. And we pray for ourselves. Because we're in a mess. We're in a, in a fix and we say, Lord, please help me. And if you're not going to get me out of here straight away, then get me through it. Give me the grace that I need. Give me the strength I need to get through that. Jesus on the cross, what does he pray? For himself? No. He prays for you and me. Seneca, who was a Roman historian at the time, he wrote this. He said it was very common for those who were crucified to utter blasphemies and words of wrath towards those who were involved in the execution. Seneca, a contemporary of Jesus, he recounts that those who were crucified would normally curse everybody, including their own mothers and fathers. And the Roman philosopher Cicero writes that executioners would sometimes climb up and cut off the tongues of people hanging on the cross because they were so fed up with hearing all the cursing coming out of their mouths before they died. You've got that kind of picture of people in agony, they know they're going to die, and what comes out of the core of them? Hate and anger 
and how dare you do this to me and they start cursing everybody and everything and you've got Jesus who says Father forgive them they don't know what they're doing that's why the Roman centurion when he heard said my goodness this guy's different I've heard it all but I've never heard this before he prays for you and me and then in the Greek it's an imperfect tense it means he's praying it repeatedly I don't know when that started whether that started that prayer at, uh, at the, in Gethsemane or whether it started as his, the nails were going into his wrists and into his feet but it's like he's saying it over and over and over again Father forgive them Father forgive them Father forgive them over and over again I mean we know that Jesus Jesus begins doesn't he his ministry in prayer in Luke 3.21 it says as he was praying at his baptism the spirit of God descended the heavens opened the spirit of God descended like a dove he started his ministry in prayer he continues throughout his ministry to pray doesn't he he's always going away finding a quiet spot talking to his father before he calls the disciples he's away in prayer Jesus his whole life (coughs) excuse me was a life of prayer and yet here on the cross it's no different he says Father Father forgive them (coughs) excuse me and he keeps on praying (coughs) over and over again Forgive them, (coughs) forgive them. (coughs) But what does this really mean? What does it show us about who Jesus is? Well, first of all, it shows us that Scripture is always fulfilled. (coughs) Oh dear. (coughs) If you think back in Isaiah 53, that great passage about the suffering servant, there you see in the words of Isaiah a prophecy about what's going to happen to Jesus that his body is going to be ripped apart that by his stripes we're going to be healed he's going to be disfigured and so on and so we see here on the cross when he's praying Father forgive them it's it's a fulfilment of the scriptures where he says he's going to pray for us but it also shows us in that moment The, the hardness of the human heart. Jesus' first words are for you and for me. Forgive us. Forgive them, Lord. Why? Because our hearts are so hard towards God. You know, in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But it continues, doesn't it, in John 1. <coughs> It says, he was in the, sorry, there came a man who was sent from God, his name was John. He came the true light that lights everyone. He came as a witness and so on. But then look down a bit further. It says in verse 10, he was in the world, this is Jesus, the light of the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. 
There's a hardness in our hearts towards God and towards the things of God. And so the first words show us and demonstrate to us, and Jesus had in mind that hardness that is in our hearts. Forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. He recognised our situation. And he was so overwhelmed by our situation that his thoughts on the cross, even though he's racked in pain, is towards you and me. Because there we also see the magnitude of our need. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. That is so true. You know how easy it is to, to see the faults of others? You know how easy that is? You look around other people and you go, yeah, I can put my finger exactly on what your problem is. And your problem, and your problem, and your problem. We can all do that. We're experts. I don't know why we're not all counsellors and psychoanalysts. Because that's what we do. I know exactly what that person's problem is. But when they point the finger towards me, then it's like, I don't know who you're talking about. That's not me. Who are you talking about? It's got to be somebody else. Your mistaken identity going on here. You're not talking about me because I'm not like that at all. No, 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 no. And that's life, isn't it? We can, we can, we can be 100% sure about other people. But when somebody says it about you or me, you know, we say it about ourselves, then it's like, no, that's not me. Why? Because our heart is deceitful. And we go, I'm not like that. I'm really not like that. One of the hardest courses I took in college was counselling. Because in order to be in a position to counsel someone else, you first have to understand yourself. And you effectively counsel yourself. And you know what happened? When I counselled myself, when I went through that course, it was a roller coaster because I looked at myself for the first time. I realised why I did certain things. And I went, my goodness, I don't really like who I am. I've got to deal with this. I don't like I do certain things. I don't like the motivation that's really behind certain things. I need to change. Because first, through that course it helped me to see who I really am without being deceitful, without pretending, recognising the reality of who we are. People in need of a saviour. And the fourth thing it reminds us or shows us is that Jesus here identifies with us. He says, Father, forgive them. Now when you think about in the Gospels, Jesus often forgave people, didn't he? Do you remember about the, the, uh, the guy that couldn't walk and he was lowered down through the roof? Do you remember that by his mates? What did Jesus say? He said, your sins are forgiven, now get up and walk. He did not say, Father, forgive this guy's sin did he? why not? because Jesus had the power to forgive sins so why on the cross then does Jesus not say I forgive you why does he say Father forgive them I'll tell you why it's because on the cross he has your sin and my sin. I'm not allowed to use that word. He has your brokenness and my brokenness. And at that moment, as he hung there on the cross, 
He associated himself fully with you and me. He had the weight of sin piling upon him. The weight of the brokenness in our relationships with God and with ourselves and with one another and with creation. All coming upon him. And when he had that weight for the first time of what sin feels like and what sin does and what sin really is, that brokenness really is, he couldn't at that moment say, I forgive you. He could say, Father, you need to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. In that moment, Jesus felt what you and me feel. And he associated himself completely and utterly and fully with you and me. Just as he did in his baptism at the start. He didn't need to be baptized, he was perfect. But here, he associated with us through baptism. And here, he associates with us in our humanity and in our needs. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says this. Let me look it up quickly. It says, God made himself who has no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God had no sin but made himself sin, it says, so that he might win for us forgiveness. And in that moment he identifies with us. And the fifth thing it shows us is his love. For God so loved the world that he gave. When humanity had done its absolute worst, what do we find? We find the mercy of God. God showing his love. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We'd beaten him, bruised him, kicked him, spat on him, whipped him, beaten him, his humanity to a pulp. And then his spirit and everything else, we said, we don't want to know about you. Get away from us. Let's kill you. And when we had done that, even then, he still showed his love. But what does it really mean, Father, forgive them? What was he really saying? What was he really praying for? Well, it's not a blanket pardon. He's not saying, well... God just forgives everybody. It's been done, so um, so there you go. I forgive you. If you look back in in John chapter 1, a little bit further on, in that same passage, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Yet, it says, even though he came that which was his own, but his own did not receive him, yet to all who received him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of the human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. It's only those who choose to receive him. And forgiveness is only for those who choose to receive it. God never, in the scriptures, just says, I'm going to forgive absolutely everybody. It's only for those who want to receive that forgiveness. Because he doesn't force it on anyone. He offers it, but he never forces himself. And it's not excusing our ignorance. It's not like a let-off clause. It's not like saying, well, Father, forgive them. They didn't know what they were doing. They have no idea what they were about. So, Lord, just, just forget about it, alright? Please just forget about it. 
It's like when you get caught speeding, you know, or breaking the law or whatever. You can't, you can't just say, well, I'm sorry, I didn't realise what the law was. I can't just go round to your house and take your television set and say, oh, I didn't realise that you can't steal television sets. I'm really sorry about that. You were telling me there's a law that says you can't do that? It's no excuse. If, if you do something wrong, you can't, you know, you, it, you're held responsible. Ignorance is no excuse. You can try it. I said at the early service, I did that once in Canada when I was driving and got caught doing like 50 in a 30 zone, pulled over and I said, I'm English. Here's my English driving licence. And I put on my most posh English accent and they let me off. (laughs) But that's not what Jesus is doing here. Right? If you try that in England, it's not going to work. Even with a Canadian accent, eh? You know, so it's not going to work. Jesus is not saying that. What he is saying is something rather different and actually rather surprising. The Greek word for forgive, for those who want to know, is a femi, which really means to send away, to release, to let go, to give. It's the same word that comes up a number of times in the New Testament. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. You'll be quite surprised. Well, I was surprised. Matthew 5 verse 40. This is the Sermon on the Mount. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. The let him have your is the same word. In other words, let it go. Give it away. It's not yours. Just give it to him. If he wants to take your, your, uh, your tunic, let it go. Give him your cloak. It's the same word that's used. Flip over to John 12, verse 7. John 12. This is Mary in the alabaster jar when he's anointed at Bethany just before he comes in on Palm Sunday. You remember she breaks the jar, anoints his feet, and Judas says, why won't we sell that and give the money to the poor? What does Jesus say in verse 7? Leave her alone, he replied. It's the same word. Leave her alone. Let her be. Let it go. Just leave it. And it's the same word that, that humanity uses, the people use for Jesus in Matthew 27:49, when he's on the cross. And he's there and they look at him and they see him as being thirsty. Matthew 27:49. He said, immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. But the rest said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. So what Jesus is really praying is, Father, leave him alone. They don't know what they're doing. Think of it like this. If somebody hurts you, it hurts, right? Somebody says something nasty to you, it really hurts. But you kind of get over it, don't you? And you move on and you go. But if somebody says something nasty to a friend, 
or to a member of your family, to your wife or to your children, then that's a different level, isn't it? Then you're kind of going, how dare they? And you start getting all justified and going like, yeah, attack me, I can deal with that. You attack my wife and my children, man, you're on a different ball game here. That's, this is what Hollywood films are all about, isn't it? You know, the guy's there, he's some kind of fireman or something or the other, just going about his daily business and all of a sudden some bad guys come, take his wife away. And the whole plot is, he gets even. Isn't it? Or he gets, member of his family, his daughter or his son gets kidnapped. Right, I'm coming to get you. Rambo's the same, isn't it? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, or how many there were of them? I'm coming to get you. Why? Because that's justice, isn't it? That's what we, you know. But Jesus is here saying, Father, don't come and get them. Leave them be. And you think about the resources that God has at his disposal to deal with us justly. What does justice demand? We've just nailed God to a cross. We've abused him, beaten him, struck him, done away with him said you're pointless and worthless and we want nothing to do with you. And God the Father, what do you think he's going through? He's there going, why don't I just wipe him out again like I did back in the flood? Why should I bother with these stupid people? Why? You imagine if that was done to a member of your family? How you would feel? You think about God in all his power what he was thinking, what he was feeling at that moment towards you and me that stuck in there. And Jesus prays, Father, leave them alone. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand. They, don't, they can't comprehend why I'm here. Please, leave them alone. That's what Jesus is praying. Give them time, Lord. Give them time to come to that moment of repentance. To come to that moment where they do realise what they're doing and they turn away from it. You know, it's the same as the Lord's Prayer, that word. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's exactly the same meaning. What we're saying is, Father, forgive me in other words, give me time to amend my ways. Don't, don't bring on me what I really deserve. As I'm not going to bring on other people what they deserve for how they've hurt me. That's what you're praying in the Lord's Prayer. It kind of changes the Lord's Prayer. I never even realised it before, looking at this. That's what Jesus is praying. Yes, he does forgive us. But here he's saying, Lord, don't bring that anger. Don't bring that justice upon your people. Give them time. Give them time to change. Give them time to amend their ways. Which is what one of the, one of the thieves does, isn't it? Jesus' first words to us is is towards our most desperate of need. Charles Sell said this, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. 
If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a saviour. Jesus on the cross is saying, Lord, don't bring your justice. Don't give them what they deserve. Wait. Just give them time. Because I'm sure that they will amend their ways. And we need to recognise that in ourselves as well. That sometimes we need to forgive others. You know that word that says, I wish I could turn back the clock? Yeah. We use that so often, don't we? But you know, we need to learn to forgive ourselves in the way that God has forgiven us. And forgive others in the same way that God has forgiven them. But we have time. The scars are there. Jesus still has. When you see him, he'll still have those prints on his body. You'll still see the scars. Because you can't undo the damage. You cannot turn the clock back. But what you can do is let it go. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The number of times I speak to people, in like a counselling situation, and they bring up the same thing over and over and over again. Jesus says, let it go. I had to let it go on the cross. And if he could let it go on the cross for you and me, then surely we can let it go for others. Yeah, they hurt us deeply. But we don't have to carry it. In fact, we, we shouldn't carry it. Because if Jesus has let it go for us, he's told us to let it go for others. And his first word on the cross is that very word. Let it go. Let it go. So that you might be free. Free from carrying all that junk. All that pain in your life. Receive forgiveness. So that you might be a channel of his forgiveness to others. In a moment we're going to come to the rail and we're going to take in our hands the bread and the wine, the symbols of Christ's body that was broken and his blood that was poured out. And today he's saying to us, let it go. Whatever you are carrying in your life, let it go. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. Yeah, people hurt us deeply, deeply. But we cannot come to his table unless we're willing to let go. Otherwise, what are we saying about the cross? That it was pointless? That yeah, you went for all that Jesus, but you can't deal with what I'm carrying right now? It's too big for you? He said, I dealt with it. I nailed it to the cross. That's why he went through all of that. You don't have to carry it any longer. Let us pray. Lord, you are amazing. I don't understand why you would do that for us. 
Because I look at myself and I just see how weak and just how, I don't know, how stuttering a, a faith that we have. And we try, but... And yet you invite us to come again and again. And you say, I went through all of that so that you don't have to. I went through all of that so that you can receive the forgiveness and so that my Father won't deal with you in the way that you should be dealt with. That's grace. Because he dealt with you. You took it on yourself so that I don't have to carry it. And so what an affront it is to the cross if I keep carrying this same old stuff over and over again, if I keep defining my life by it and living it and bringing it up over and over and over again, Lord, it's just an affront to you and to what you went through. Help me today, as I kneel at your rail, to release it to you, finally. To say, I don't want to carry this any longer. I don't want this to define me Because you prayed, Father, forgive them. I'm going through this for these people. He went through it for me. I thank you. I praise you. And Lord, I offer you my life. Because I can give nothing else. Thank you, Lord. For we pray in your name. Amen.